You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see your faces. My name is Roger. I am also into unfinished sheetrock. So... There we go. Yeah, I'm the associate pastor here. Excited this morning to be continuing our message series um, called The Core of Who We Are. And in the series, what we're doing is we're looking at the five core vineyard values. And I, and I think one thing that's worth saying right on the outset this morning is, is that none of these are things that are explicitly unique to the vineyard, right? So you might be thinking, well, I didn't know the vineyard was a bigger thing. It is. Um, These are not things exclusive to the vineyard. We share these with lots of different flavors of church all throughout the world. Um, And this doesn't make us better than any other churches. It might make us worse than other churches. I don't know. But it is kind of who we are. This unique combination uh, of these five core values just kind of make up our DNA as a church. So particularly if you're you're kind of looking for a new church home or you're trying to figure out like where it is that you fit, um, these kind of series I think are perhaps particularly helpful for you. So... I uh, hope you enjoy that. Um, today, uh, I'm going to share with you guys three poems. Can I do that? I love poems. So I'm going to read three poems to you guys. The first one is a British poem from a couple hundred years ago. Uh, we're going to read an ancient Near East poem, uh, and then I'll read a more contemporary American poem. Now, this first one, this British poem, um, throughout the years, it's gone through several different kind of iterations as it's translated through different cultures and dialects or whatever. Um, but, but you will most likely be pretty familiar with it. I'll, I'll read you the version that I think you're probably most familiar with, okay? It goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty, I'm not preaching yet. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses... All the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, not much is known about this character Humpty Dumpty, whether or not he is based on an actual living person or if he's a fictional character. We don't know. We do know a few things about him, though. We, we do know that he was kind of Humpty. He's, he was rather Dumpty. Um, we, we know that he sustained significant, perhaps life-threatening injuries from a fall, and, and we know that his injuries were beyond the greatest powers of his day to repair. He was kind of a lost cause, right? So really, this is just sad. It's just, it's just really sad. The, the poem Humpty Dumpty, it's really just bad news. I, I really don't know why we teach this to our kids, right? Like, why do we all know this? Why do we all know this? And why did he eventually get depicted as an egg? You know, I mean, a lot of other things are breakable besides an egg. Some musical in like the 1800s or something portrayed it as an egg. There we go. And what's really curious about it to me is why does such a sad, depressing, weird little poem have such staying power? How does it have such staying cultural power that it would get translated to where even like crossing the Atlantic Ocean to America, we're like, sure, we'll take that. I'll read it to my kids. Sounds like a great bedtime thing to do, you know? Like, I I think it has such tremendous staying power for one really simple but powerful reason. And I don't know if this was at all in the intention of the original author or anything, but I think there is something in us that has continued to tell this story because what we know is that we are all a bit humpty. And we are all rather dumpty. And I think it's bigger than just you or me, right? Like it's not just I'm Humpty Dumpty and you're Humpty Dumpty. What we know true to deep down in our souls is that our whole world is Humpty Dumpty. 
We live in a Humpty Dumpty world. And, and whether you've got any kind of theology attached to this idea or not, we all know that our world has had a great fall and has sustained significant, if not life-threatening, injuries, right? And, and we know that the greatest powers of our day, those with the greatest resources, the latest advances, um, all the most influential leaders and celebrities, all the politicians with their big promises, no one has been able to put our Humpty Dumpty world back together again. In fact, it feels like we keep finding new walls to fall off of, right? 2020 felt like we fell off of a new wall into a dumpster fire, right? It's just what happens. So this still, this is bad news. I'm really sorry. I tried to think of the silliest way to tell you guys some bad news, and there you go. You get Humpty Dumpty. But there's good news. In the words of Jesus, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so today we're going to be talking about this value that we are a people of the kingdom who reconcile others with God and creation. We're a people who restore relationship between people and God and people with other people and everything else in all the rest of creation. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here in the beginning with the why behind all of that, right? It's not just that we do it because we feel like, oh, that's a good, fun, humanitarian thing to do. That could be good enough reason. But the why behind this is because we have a king who reconciles, right? We're kingdom people, and this is the business of our king. We, we live as Christians, as citizens of a kingdom whose laws bring reconciliation, right? That, that our MO of living brings healing and restoration and renewal, which brings us to poem number two from the ancient Near East. You've probably got it in your Bibles. It's actually found in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, if you care to read along. It'll also be in the program if you've got that on Facebook Live or here, and it'll also be on the screens. This is this poem that Paul includes in his letter to the church in Colossae. The sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray. King Jesus, we humble ourselves before you today. We praise you as the creator and the holder together of all things. And we just pray, Jesus, would you let us see you in new and different light this morning? 
God, would you open up our eyes to see what it is that you're doing in the big picture of the universe? Would you help us get our eyes? Sometimes we get so focused on what's going on in our own lives or right in front of us, and those things are important. But God, help us lift up our eyes this morning to see bigger and wider. Lord, we want to see you differently. We want to see ourselves differently. So whether we're here in this room right now, if we're on Facebook Live, or people in the future listening to this on the podcast, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak and that you would just have something specific to say to every single person. Every single Humpty Dumpty one of us, God, would you speak your hope and your healing to us. I pray that your voice would be much more louder than my own today. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so, so this is indeed a poem. Uh, perhaps the translation you're reading from, if you've got your Bible out, perhaps that translation doesn't like typographically display it that way with line breaks and such. Some do, some don't. Um, but most scholars believe that this is indeed a poem, uh, quite possibly a poem that predates Paul, right? Meaning that maybe Paul didn't actually pen these words and create them out of his own brain, but maybe, maybe he's including them in this letter because it was part of a poetic liturgy, possibly even a song that churches already knew that they would sing, something that they wrote to kind of encapsulize in a really condensed, powerful way what they believed about Jesus, right? What they believed about creation and redemption and their, their role in it. And, and so, so perhaps Paul is actually the author. Perhaps he's merely incorporating this language that his readers would have been familiar with. It doesn't really matter. Uh, either way, it's, it's an incredibly rich and dense passage. There's a whole lot going on in these five short verses, both, both poetically and theologically. Um, but this morning, I'd like to meditate on just three phrases. All right, can we do that? We're just going to pull out three phrases that I felt just kind of led to focus on. And, and the first is just the very opening of this, right? The way a poem begins is always important. And so this is the way it begins. The sun is the image of the invisible God. Image, invisible, right? Like seen, unseen, tactile, intangible. There, there's like this contrast going on here, but, but a connection happening, saying that the world is not meant to be left in the dark about who God is, right? An image helps us see something that is invisible. And if you want to know what God looks like, the most simple thing I can tell you is look at Jesus, right? If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus, right? He, he mirrors the qualities of God. He mirrors the character of God, but what's interesting is that this idea of an image beyond just mirroring qualities or beyond just mirroring character is mirror or an image has to do with both um, power and desire. Image has to do with power and desire. Uh, an image or an icon, right? The Greek word used here is akon, which is where we get the word icon. So an image or an icon, again, it's a visual representation of something not actually present, yet which is nonetheless real, right? It's something that actually exists and we're making it visible and somehow present in this place. I think I'll put it like this. An image makes whatever is invisible to be effectually present. An image makes whatever is invisible to be effectually present, meaning that whatever this absent or unseen thing is can still have an effect here and now in this room even though it can't be seen. 
right? The, the image makes it seem as though that power or that influence that's held by that thing is actually happening in the room. Now, in the ancient Roman Empire, this was really obvious. If you mentioned an image, if you used the word akon in Greek, people would have an immediate reference point. The local statue of Caesar. Use the word icon. They're instantly thinking, oh, that, that statue in the town center of Caesar. Or they're thinking the coins that we have, right? Whose image is on them, right? Jesus went through this whole bit, right? You, Caesar's image is stamped on there. His image would be in a number of places all over the place. The, the emperor would, would place an image of himself in distant territories as a visual reminder of who's in charge. It was a visual, tangible reminder of his rule and reign, of his laws and decrees, of his power and authority, of his desires, of his will, and that his desires and will were going to be enacted by his power, right, or else, right? That's what went along with the statue in the town center, right? Because Caesar, Caesar could not be present in all of the distant towns and territories all at once, right? The Roman Empire was huge and expansive, right? One of the largest territories that, that any empire has ever occupied on planet Earth. He couldn't be everywhere all at once, but his icon, his statue, his coin, whatever, was still immensely effective at extending his power, and so this is, what, this is what Paul in this poem is trying to express about Jesus. Jesus is this icon, this present thing that is indicating power and authority and desire that is even far bigger, that may seem to not be present at the moment, but yet it is. It's why Jesus could say, the kingdom of God is among you, right? Because there he was among them. So that's the first phrase, right? The son is the image of the invisible God. The second one is in several verses, and, and note what all of these carry in common together, right? Um, the, the last part of verse 15 at the beginning of this, um, he talks about the firstborn over all creation. In verse 16, for in him all things were created, all things have been created through him and for him. On to verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You notice the repetition going on here, right? Six times in these five short verses, we have this phrase, all things, or one of them is all creation, right? All creation, all things, that everything was created by God. And in this passage, what's even more fascinating is, is their, their understanding, well, it's actually through Christ, that Christ was present and active in making everything that we know that was made in the world, and not just that he created it all, but that God intends to reconcile all things back to himself, which we'll get to in a minute here. And I think this is important for us to understand because what the image of God, the icon of God is coming to do with his image, uh, bringing his power, making his desires known and enacted in the world has to do with all things. And guys, all things means all things. There's nothing fancy going on in the Greek here or anything. I tried to figure it out. There's not. All things means all things. It, it doesn't mean that all things, well, except for these few things over here. It doesn't mean everything, but, but not, really, not really this stuff. We're always looking for some kind of but. We're always, always looking for some kind of exclusivity to something. Where in fact here, he's saying this has to do with all things, 
all things were created, God's desire is to reconcile all things. Nothing is left out. No one is left out. He created all things, and he's not picking and choosing what bits of his creation he wants to keep and which bits of it he wants to scrap. And sometimes we get this picture in the church, right? I would say by some bad theology that God created a bunch of things and then stepped back and was like, ah, well, it was mostly good, right? Mostly good. We'll keep all of this. The rest of this, let's burn it, you know? And like maybe we'll like start over again. That's bad theology. It's not true. All things. And what's crazy about that Paul unpacks here in this poem is this means tangible things and intangible things. And the tangible things are the first things I think of when I think of what God created, right? Tangible things like trees and birds and mountains and bacteria, right? Those tangible things that you can touch and taste and see and smell and whatever. But this poem also unpacks that it means intangible things like power. Well, God created all power and wants to reconcile power. Talks about authority, Governments, nations, economies, cultures, education, et cetera, et cetera, all of these intangible things, but that nonetheless exist in the world, exist by the power of Christ, and God has some kind of redemptive purpose for all of it. So the first phrase, again, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He's bringing and enacting this effective power of God to be present. And that all things means all things, that God has purpose for everything. And the third phrase is in verse 19 through 20. It says, for God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. He wants to do something with the all things. And this has to do with the pleasure of God. Do you ever, have you, do you ever wonder like what pleases God? Right? If you've been, like, if you've been a Christian for like half a minute, you probably start thinking about like, what, what makes God happy? right? What makes God smile? Depending on your upbringing in the church, you may have a stronger reaction to the idea of like, well, what displeases God, right? Maybe we can come up with an easier list of that, right? Like, what are the things that you think makes God sad, you know? What is it that bums God out or makes him angry or something, right? We, some, for some reason, we have this unhealthy understanding of God as being very easily grumpy, Right? And it's true, if we can talk about God being pleased, then we have to understand that God can be displeased. But this poem has something really fascinating to say about like just what tickles God. What just makes him go, oh man, that's fun. That was good. And it's this. It is God's great pleasure to put all things back together in Christ. That just, that just like, that's what gets him up in the morning. It is God's great pleasure to put our Humpty Dumpty world back together again in Christ. That's what gives him joy. He talks about the fullness of Christ, right? He talks about the fullness of God, rather, being present in Christ. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. And, And what happens when all the fullness of God comes into contact with all things? This is the picture of what's happening here. All the fullness of God suddenly becomes present to all things. You know what happens is that you get the resurrection of what was dead. You get the renewal of whatever is old and worn out. You get the reconciliation of whatever was divided and disunified. 
And what this means is that what displeases God is that his great displeasure is in division and brokenness. If God's great pleasure is found in the reconciliation of all things, his great displeasure is in the separation of all things. You know, God's never, God's never simply like, like uh, displeased with sin simply because some rule of his was broken. We can sometimes get this idea, right? And sometimes maybe in like Sunday school land when kids are really little, that's kind of as simplistic as we have to put it, right? But it's not that God just gets bummed out with us when rules of his are broken, but because sin fractures his originally good creation. It's the effect of it. These like ripple effects of what happens. Now, conversely, right, he's not just excited about, about having the, his fullness dwell in Christ. He's excited about the effects that that has all throughout creation. Right? It's not like God the Father is in heaven with Jesus and he's like, hey, son, you remember that time that like you became like a person, like human? He's like, oh yeah, dad, I remember that. He's like, and then like I made like all my fullness like fit inside of you. And they're like, oh yeah. Wasn't that a, wasn't that a good trick? Like, and seriously, I mean, maybe that pleases God in and of itself. That takes some cleverness, right? That takes a fair amount of creativity and ingenuity, probably a fair amount of power to figure out how to do that. But it wasn't just like, ooh, that was a neat trick that we did for like 33 years and then it was over. It was because when all of his fullness dwelled in Jesus and they came in contact with all things, reconciliation began. Renewal began. That power had this rippling effect that is continuing to roll throughout the universe. Which brings us to our third poem for the day. And it's one that actually just formed part of our worship today, guys. This is, by, this is by the unofficial poet laureate of the vineyard, a man named Sam Yoder. Um, and it's a poem. It happens to be one with a melody. We normally think of it along those lines. And it begins much like Paul's poem, praising God for his work in creation, but then goes on to his great work in Christ of renewal and reconciliation, right? God, how beautiful your holy word that formed the worlds in such goodness. Oh, the shame that we would spurn it all to turn and fall into darkness. In parentheses, Humpty Dumpty. And God will sing how through your son, not all the king's horses, not all the king's men, how through your son you turned this loss and hurt into glory how when scorned in death you raised him up and his gains become the whole world's story. So let all things rise, all things, and bless your name. All things made right and new again. O Lord, our God, your goodness is free and boundless, is reaching endless through it all. Then in the, in the end of the second verse, Yoder helps us sing about our own involvement in God's work of recreation. And this is important because oftentimes as Christians, we can get this idea and we can cheer to that and we can say, yes, amen. Does anybody want to give an amen to that? You can do it now. Great. Okay, we got a couple of them. So, like, 
that's wonderful. But sometimes we can get this passivity in us that says, well, okay, one day in the great by and by, I can believe that that's what God is doing. But now, like just ho-hum, it's a dreary, rainy day. Why did I even get up and come here this morning? I just want to go home and snuggle up in bed. That's fine. We all want to do that. It's okay, right? We're not just waiting for the end. We're invited into this. We're invited to be active participants in this. This is, this is what the second half of this verse sings. Son of God, in you, we've taken up the way of love's occupation. Oh, the joy to share in your reward the stunning turn of new creation. We have taken up this occupation of love, this job, this task. It is not love to sit on our hands and wait until the end. It was not the love of, the love of God didn't compel him to just keep Christ in heaven and sit and wait it out until some end of everything hit. The love of God compelled Jesus to come to earth for all his fullness to dwell in him and to set into motion this reconciliation and renewal. It is not love for us to just sit back and just kind of twiddle our thumbs and wait. Love gets involved. Love says, where is there disunity? How can I bring unity? Love says, where is there separation that I can bring reconnection? Where is there brokenness that I can be a part of bringing healing? In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, so much along these same lines, but he's really drilling in on this bit about our role, our involvement. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Right? You're hearing this already? This, this new creation, renewal, redemption, the renewal of all things. If you've been caught up in that already, this is the story. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We could stop right there, but he doesn't. Reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Whoa. Wait, 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 wait. He gave it to us? What, like, what is what does that mean? Isn't God the one who reconciles? Yeah, but somehow when Christ renews us, he gives us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world, all things, to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Being renewed in Christ involves putting all things back together in him. This is what it means. When you're renewed in Christ, it, it involves putting all things then, you, me, being involved in putting all things back together in him. Joining God in his work of reconciling all things to himself in Christ is the mandate given to us upon our own renewal. Reconciliation is not a special ministry given to a uniquely few called individuals. This is not optional, Right? This, there's a lot of things in the Christian faith, guys, that are optional. 
I think. I think this is legit. There's, there's a lot of things that's like, man, I'm not called to do that, and you're not called to do this, and, and I'm not gifted for that, and someone else is gifted for that thing, and I don't live that, such and such place, so I can't serve there, and someone else lives there, and they can minister there, right? There's a whole lot that is off the table for you and me as individuals. This is not one of them. Note the, note the plural here, right? Note the communal nature and this is hard for us, man. As, as, as Americans, we're so individual, right? We're so individualistic. We, we really kind of like don't hear and see things half, half the time in a very correct way when we read the Bible. But note this. God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He didn't just reconcile me to him. He didn't just reconcile you to God. He reconciled us. He didn't just give me some ministry and you some ministry. He gave us. This putting back together business is not an add-on. Just as Christ is the image of the invisible God, so are we, right? Go back and read Genesis 1 for starters. So here's the question for us. Like, are you a reconciler or are you a divider? When, when, when you walk into your house, does your presence in the room cause friction and things to kind of come apart? Or are you one that somehow can bring people together? When you walk into your work tomorrow morning, right, are you the kind of person that walks in the room that suddenly there's like factions and divisions and rubbing people the wrong way and pushing things over here and whatever and Or are you the kind of person that walks in the room and somehow there is just peace and unity and reconciliation? When you go on social media, are all of your opinions that you are so sure about the kind of things that cause greater division amongst other people? Or are they things that cause people to come together? Let me suggest that if you are a divider, you are not being a Christian. You're just not. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, which means that those who are peace breakers are children of somebody else. Gosh, I hate Jesus sometimes, right? Like, mm, man, does that make you uncomfortable? That makes me uncomfortable. I love you. You know that, Jesus, right? Like, that's hard, but it's true. But guys, the, the beautiful part of this is A, I'm not, I'm not meant to fix everything. You're not meant to fix everything. If, if I can be one little bit of reconciliation today, then I'm doing my job. If you can bring one little bit of reconciliation today somewhere in the world, you're doing your job. It's the collective reconciliation of all of us that ministers to the world. This Humpty Dumpty world needs us to be reconcilers. Let me suggest that as long as we in the church are known for being dividers, and let's be honest that we are, we don't always have the best reputation. It's hard to fix a reputation, but we can try. As long as we in the church are known for being dividers, the rest of the world is going to want nothing to do with us or the supposed gospel we preach. Because they have enough divisiveness on their own, thank you very much, And until we can demonstrate a different way of being human, until we can live like real reconciled reconcilers, until we can visibly manifest that we are new creations, they will plug their ears whenever we say, be reconciled to God. 
because we haven't demonstrated it at all. Now, it's, it's no accident. This could, this could work out in a thousand different ways practically in our lives. And I will trust the Holy Spirit to work your imagination for yourself in your own life, in your own family, your own workplace, whatever. But it's no accident today that, that, that we're talking about being reconciling people when tomorrow is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I think if, if I was to name any one issue upon which the, 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 the reputation of the church in the annals of history is going to hang, it is on this. And thus far, the church has done really, really great in some ways, and the church has done really, really poorly in some ways. But the issue of, of racial relations in America, of racial justice, of racial reconciliation is kind of the biggest issue that is going to determine how history looks back on us as Christians and will determine how so many people in our culture are either open to hearing this gospel that we preach or are not. There was a... Um, and I, I think this is, no, this is noteworthy for, for King because if there is anyone in modern times who embodied what it looks like for someone to give their whole life to the ministry of reconciliation, it's him. Like his whole being was, was plunged into that. And so I want to close by reading to you a selection from a talk that he gave. This is a talk he gave at a convention back in 1954. Um, the talk was entitled, A Vision of a World Made New. And this is just three short paragraphs. But he's painting this big picture. He's painting this big cosmic picture again, right? He said, many centuries ago, a man by the name of John was in prison on a lonely, obscure island called Patmos. In such a situation, he was deprived of almost every freedom but the freedom to think. He thought about many things. He thought about a possible new world and a new social order. He meditated on the need for a change in the old pattern of things. So one day he cried out, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. This is Revelation 21, 1 through 2. John could talk meaningfully about the New Jerusalem because he had experienced the old Jerusalem with its perfunctory ceremonialism, its tragic gulfs between abject poverty and inordinate wealth, its political domination, its economic exploitation. John could see this old Jerusalem passing away and the new Jerusalem coming into being, Revelation 21.4. John is saying something quite significant here. He realized that the old earth did not represent the earth as it should be. He knew that the conditions of the old Jerusalem did not represent the permanent structure of the universe. I love that phrase. The old Jerusalem did not represent the permanent structure of the universe. The old Jerusalem represented injustice, crushing domination, and the triumph of the forces of darkness. The new Jerusalem represented justice, brotherhood, and the triumph of the forces of light. So, when John said he saw the new Jerusalem, he was saying in substance that he saw justice conquering injustice. He saw the forces of darkness consumed by the forces of light. Ultimately, 
History brings into being the new order to blot out the tragic reign of the old order. King read the Bible. He didn't just read Revelation. He read Colossians 1. You hear all those echoes in there of that. Guys, may we, may we be a people that don't just say, oh, one of our core values is reconciling you know, people with God and creation, but really live it. May we be people of the new Jerusalem who represent the new, the permanent structure of the universe as it is going to be without end. May we be a people who join with Christ in bringing into being the new order to blot out the tragic reign of the old order. Anywhere that you see something that you think qualifies as the tragic reign of the old order, you are deputized as an ambassador of Christ to blot that out with the new order of his rule and reign. Ha! It's good. May we become reconciled reconcilers who are known not for the divisions that we cause, but for the reunification that we work so diligently towards. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite you to close this with me by praying together. I'd invite us all to pray together this last bit of the song that we sang earlier. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you've made yourself a home. Heaven and earth forever one. All things once sown in weakness, you raise in promise. Your beauty arches above it all. All things once sown in weakness, you raise in promise your beauty arches above it all. Amen.